Thank you, Chad. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time, and thanks to those uh, who are leading. If you're new with us today, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to be in the book of the Bible called Philippians. So if you brought a Bible, turn with me there to Philippians. And if you don't have one, there should be a Bible under the seat directly in front of you. And we are on page 677. So it's page 677. And the big, big numbers on those pages are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in our second week of just beginning to walk through this book together. Philippians is a deeply encouraging letter written by a spiritual leader in the first century named Paul. Under God's direction, he wrote to a church he'd started about a decade before writing this letter to a town called Philippi, to a group of people in that town who made up the church there. So we're in Philippians 1 today. Before we read, maybe I could help frame our discussion today with a question. When you think of church, what do you think of? When you think of church, what do you think of? Certainly with a group this diverse, we have lots of contrasting ideas. Maybe I could try to capture a, a few of them. Some of us might think of a building. We might think of a building when we think of church. Now, there's probably not many of you here because uh, our buildings are nothing to write home about. Uh, we do the best we can with them, but they're pretty old. Nothing's falling down today, and all the commodes are working, so we're happy. Some of us, though, don't think of a building. We think of, we think of a service, what we're sitting in right now. That certainly is church, right? But is there more to it than that? Is church more than a service? Some here today, maybe you don't really know what to think. You're brand new to this. Maybe you're sitting in church for the very first time. Where else do you go that people stand and sing for an hour or 30 minutes and there's no alcohol involved? It's kind of weird, isn't it? And what about all those weird words? We just sung over and over and over, it's well with my soul. What's a soul and what's up with the blood? Are you people weird vampires? Maybe the weirdest line we ever sing in church is raise my Ebenezer. What the heck is an Ebenezer? But more seriously, what is the deal with, with church? People are nice here. Why? That's kind of strange. Is this a cult? Is it a club? Is it real? If you're new to church, welcome. But maybe some of us, when we think of church, have negative thoughts. We think about shattered relationships. We think about irrelevant sermons. Hopefully not this one. We think about judgmental people, unfulfilled promises, demands, hypocrisy, rules. The kind of place where you go and you turn your brain off because that must be what faith is. We likely all think about a variety of different things when we think about church. Today in our passage, we're going to see what Paul thought about when he thought about church. Now, why would that matter to you? Well, it's a crucial question because Paul was commissioned by Jesus himself 
to start churches. In fact, he was the most prolific missionary the world has ever seen. He opened up literally entire continents to the gospel and remains the world's greatest missionary. So he, without a doubt, would know what church is supposed to be. He would know what it's for. He would know what goals and objectives we're trying to accomplish. No one has made a more significant impact on the church, except for Jesus, than Paul. So when he thinks about church, what he thinks about might help us understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish together. So Paul, as I said, wrote this letter to a church that he had started, to a group of people. That's why it's called the Philippians. They were in a town called Philippi. And he'll help us understand what church is. So look at verse 3 with me today. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making it my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a thick dense prayer. One way to tell what really matters to people is to listen in as they pray. Because what comes out when we're talking to God, unless we're pretending for those around us, is really reflective of what's in our hearts. When Paul thought about the church in Philippi, he did two things. One, he, he burst into thanksgiving and praise. He was overcome with emotion and appreciation for this church. And after he praised God, then he moved into second, into confident requests for their progress in Christ. So as we think about those two things, what Paul considered church to be is really revealed for us. He thought about relationships rooted in the gospel. He thought about people caring for each other because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. He thought about people sacrificing so that the gospel could grow both in them and then out from them to their community. He thought about past progress ensuring future victory. So let's take a closer look at this prayer together this morning. It breaks down to those really two clear sections. First, joyful thanks in verse 3 through 8. And second, Confident requests in verses 9 to 11. When Paul thought about a really great church, he was filled with thanks and requests. And these thanks and requests are intended all these years later to guide us in what we ought to consider church to be. 
So maybe if I could try and make that more specific and concrete for some of us in the room today. There are many new students and scholars in the room today, or students and scholars back. So welcome. I know you're thrilled to be back starting school. When you consider your time in Tempe this fall, what criteria will you use to determine if you should be involved in church, and if so, what kind of church you ought to look for? Well, you can let this prayer of Paul guide you in that decision. There are quite a few people in the room who have become part of the Church on Mill family in the last 12 months. One of those is Tyler. Tyler, would you stand up? This is Tyler. He is the newest member of Church on Mill. Welcome, brother. Sophomore this year, right? Awesome. Your hair got longer. <laughs> Welcome, Tyler. We're glad that you're here. Invite the church to pursue you in relationship. All of you who have joined, let's say, in the last 12 months, as, as you consider the next year of your commitment at Church on Mill, what would it look like to invest more in the body? What should you be pursuing? Let this prayer guide you. There are some here in the room, no doubt, today who are unsure about Jesus. Maybe you believe God exists, but you're not so sure about all this other stuff we've been singing and talking about today. In particular, you're interested in what difference Christianity can actually make in somebody's life. Not that when you die and go to heaven stuff, but today. What difference would it make if Jesus became in charge of your life today? This prayer illustrates what happens in someone's life when Jesus is Lord. Conversely, some in the room have been Christians a really long time. This room is, is like your second home. You've spent a lot of time here. When you pray for your church, what ought you to pray as a mature believer in Christ? How could your membership here become more meaningful? This prayer is designed to guide you in that. So let's jump into it together and consider joyful thanks Joyful thanks. How did Paul thank God and why? That's all we really have time to consider in this first portion of the prayer. There's two main things, how and why. First, how. How did Paul give thanks for this church that he started? How did he give thanks? Well, his thanksgiving is full of feelings. Anybody uncomfortable yet? It's jam-packed with emotion. Just look again at those choice of words. He says he was making his prayer with joy. He said he held them in his heart. He says he yearned for them. He even says he has the affections of Christ for them. Now, Paul was no sissy. Paul was confrontational. He was tough. He was bold. Multiple times already, this man had been beaten and stoned near death. He'd been incarcerated. And as he was writing this letter, he was in prison. On one end of a chain was his ankle. On another end of that chain was a Roman guard, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he had been in prison by this point for two years. Two years. 
And as he thinks about this church, people he can't see, there's no FaceTime, there's no Skype. He hasn't seen them in years. And just the mere experience of praying for them arouses in him all of these emotions. Deep, deep joy. Paul's Christianity involved his whole being, even his emotions. Brothers and sisters, if you don't have feelings for God and God's people ever, something's wrong. Something's gone really badly. Now, I get that we live in the valley. I've lived a lot of places in the country, and this is probably the least expressive place I've ever lived, especially at sporting events. They're not even worth paying the money and going to. People are half dead. It's, it's normal when you go to a game to yell and cheer and act like a complete idiot, right? But people don't do that here. We're too cool for that. I heard that. Sometimes we have decent teams. Phoenicians are so laid back, we're almost like mannequins, especially when we're in church. But what would Paul have been like if he was here? From all indications, he was a, a short, ugly, stout man. He was a thinker. And yet in this prayer, he's just oozing with joy, with emotion. It's okay to be chill. But Christians, if God, Christ, the Spirit, seeing him at work among God's people doesn't ever affect you emotionally, that's not an indication of strength and maturity. It's a sign that your heart has become hard. So you ought to pray for a softened heart. Paul was a tough, tough man who persevered through enormous hardship, a brilliant thinker, and yet he felt incredibly deeply for the people of God. I went through, frankly, a stretch of several years of my Christian walk where I felt very little. Reading the Bible became stale and boring. Singing in church never moved me to tears anymore. The needs of people didn't drum up compassion. And relationships that at one point were deeply impactful lost their zeal. It happens. It has happened to me. If it's happened to you, I want to encourage you not to ignore that. It is the check engine light that something has gone wrong in your soul. So be open about it with friends, with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, and ask God to renew the joy of your salvation. Christianity is not driven by feelings, but the absence of them should alert us. Something's wrong. Men, especially, I would ask you, what difference does Jesus make in what you feel and in how you express it? The most manly men will be men 
who are moved emotionally. A stoic, unemotional Christianity and a stoic, unemotional relationship with your church are not signs of strength. They're signs of immaturity and pride. Now, why did Paul thank God for this church? That's how he thanked them. He, he thanked God emotionally. He was moved. But why? This is what you might find rather shocking. The answer is one overused word in verse 5. Partnership. Now, what's partnership? We don't use that word a lot, but we do use the Greek word behind it. It's English equivalent. It is a word called fellowship. Fellowship. Now, if you have a church background, you likely know this word can mean almost anything. So let's play with that for a minute. Some of you are uh, long-term, you have a background in Baptist churches. So when Baptists use the word fellowship, what do they mean? They mean food. Yeah. <laughs> food. Now, Baptists do a lot of fellowshipping. And that explains why the majority of Baptists around the country are rather large people. <laughs> it is undeniably true. If you, though, have other ideas about how the word fellowship is used, it might include things like this. If you go to meet a non-Christian friend tonight, go to Starbucks, you both share a cup of coffee, you talk about who won gold in the Olympics, and what you have coming up this week. And this is you as a Christian with a non-Christian. That's not fellowship. But if you go to that same Starbucks, order the same cup of coffee, and you sit down with a Christian, and the two of you together talk about who won gold in the Olympics and what you have coming up this week, we call that fellowship. That's also not fellowship. Fellowship isn't getting together with other Christian people to do whatever it is you want to do and then feeling better about yourself because you call it fellowship. That's not what Paul had in mind. We've come to use the term for nothing distinctively Christian. Friends, there's nothing wrong, of course, with talking about the Olympics. There's nothing wrong with sharing what you have coming up in your week. In fact, I hope you have both deep friendships with non-Christians and with Christians, and that's a regular habit in your life. That's a wonderful thing. But that's not what Paul was talking about. Paul had something else in mind. Turn over a couple of chapters to Philippians chapter 4. This won't be on the screens because I just thought to use it yesterday. But in Philippians 4, we see exactly what Paul was talking about in chapter 1 when he talks about partnership or fellowship. And this is going to be stunning. Verse 14, Philippians 4, 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, he's talking about when he moved into the city, there was no Christians. He shared the gospel. People started becoming Christians, and the church was born. That's what he's talking about. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into 
partnership or fellowship, it's the same word, with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. This is another missionary journey Paul was on. He was in a town called Thessalonica, sharing the gospel, spending all of his time doing that work. And so the church that had come to know Christ through him is sending him money so that he can eat and have somewhere to sleep. And he's thanking them for that work. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus. That is a cool name. I'm looking for Katie. Where's Katie? Katie, if you were having a boy, that would have been a great name. (laughs) Anyone pregnant with a boy? I would recommend the name Epaphroditus. You would be the only person with Epaphroditus as a child. All right, let's go on. Received... From Epaphroditus, the gifts you've sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here's apparently what happened. The Philippian church, multiple times, had come so in love with God, they learned the love of God through the love Paul shared with them. And so they sent him money on his missionary journeys to fuel his needs. And then when they heard he was locked up in prison... If you were under house arrest in Rome in the first century, you did not eat unless someone brought you food. Guards didn't do that. And so they sent a dear brother, Epaphroditus, to encourage him, to care for him, and to bring him food back and forth because he now had the resources to do it. So Paul, back in chapter 1, his prayer is introducing the entire letter. He's setting up the things he's going to tell them about later. His mind first goes to God in prayer and then to how he can encourage the people. So when he thought of partnership, what did he think of? He thought most directly of their contributions to the spread of the gospel. I bet if we went around the room and gave each person three guesses on what fellowship means, none of us would have said that. The church was generous from its very beginnings. They partnered sacrificially in giving money for the spread of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, fellowship is one of the most wonderful things you will ever experience in this life. There's nothing like it. Knowing that we've partnered together to further the work of God. There's nothing like that. It's holding the gospel at the center of our relationships. It's when not our education or what we look like or the color of our skin or how long we've been in church, but the shared experience of coming to know the love of Christ binds us together so much that we're willing to give stuff up in order to pursue a deeper relationship with each other with people who don't know him, that we might share Christ with them. And then we go without in order to give and foster the furthering of the work of God around the world. That is the best thing you can experience. That's why Paul had so much emotion for this church. 
Because they didn't just receive, 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 receive. They matured in Christ and they gave. Fellowship is the shared experience of self-sacrifice for the spread and growth of the gospel. That's what fellowship is. Can you do that over food? Yes, that's a great way to do it. Can you do it in Starbucks with one friend? Absolutely. But fellowship is so much more than what we put into our bodies. It's so much more than the weather and sports. It's the privilege and honor and joy of partnering together. If you're looking for real excitement, real joy, life, turn off the TV and the video games and get involved. Pursue relationships and make sacrifices in order to further the work of God. See your membership here as God's plan to grow the gospel in us and then out from us to the world. And give generously. Frankly, more money in the offering would mean more critical needs get met, more glory to God, more people to equip you for ministry, more missionaries sent across the street to the ASU campus, more growth in the gospel, more internationals being able to hear the truth, many of them for the very first time. Now, please understand, my motive is not a higher salary. Every single staff member at Church on Mill makes less here than they did where they worked last. And a lot of us make less than we did when we started working here. This is not about nicer houses, better clothes, newer cars. It's about all of us partnering together to see the work of God accomplished so that we might feel what Paul felt. Are you ever bored in prayer? I have been bored in prayer a lot of times. And I find that when I'm bored in prayer, it's because I've backed off of fellowship. I've backed off of partnering. So I'm no longer seeing and being compelled to be engaged because the needs are so great. If you're bored in prayer, it's an indication that you've backed off of the spigot where the joy comes out. The Apostle Paul praised God with deep emotion because God was growing and changing this church. It wasn't about the money. It was about God at work changing him and her for the glory of God. Now let's go on, the second half of the prayer. How he had deep emotion, why they were partnering together, and then he moved into confident request. Let's read again in verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. No one writes sentences like that anymore. You know when you write a 
a book for the public. Publishers tell you don't put more than eight words in the sentence. TV is dumbing us down. I have one. I'm, I'm not, this isn't my high horse, but that's what's happening. We're slowly becoming more and more of an oral culture. This sentence drove me nuts all week because it's way too long and too thick and got so much in it. But what it comes down to is Paul praying that this loving church would become even more loving and that their love would grow as knowledge and discernment grew. And when that happens, Christian, when you're becoming more and more loving because your knowledge of God, your experience with God, and your practical daily wisdom is increasing, then you're going to know in everyday life what to think about and what to do, and you'll be prepared for the return of Christ. That's basically what he's saying. His confident request was that their love would continue to increase. You can never tap out in the expansion of the love of God in your heart. And notice there's no object mentioned. Why? Because the end of that love is for everything and everyone. In other words, we first ought to grow in love towards God and then in love towards other believers and then towards every single person we are ever going to meet that there would be a compassion and a love and a desire to serve and help. Paul was very careful to point out that this love must grow in an environment of knowledge and discernment. Nothing could be further from the way we think today. Friends, love and knowledge and discernment must all go together or things get really, really, really messed up in a hurry. Think about what happens when someone grows in knowledge but not in love. They're like a massive bobblehead, a spiritual bobblehead. No one, no one wants to be around somebody like that. They're judgmental, they're harsh, they're rude, they lack joy. They're just walking brains. Some of us lean that direction. But what happens when love grows or something that looks like love grows, but knowledge doesn't? That's far more common in Phoenix, in Tempe. Just think of all the things done in the name of love today. Some of the most foolish, harmful things churches do are considered love. False religions are affirmed because it's loving to say you choose whatever you want, who am I, to encourage you to reconsider. Church discipline's ignored because it's not considered loving. And so the very tool of God to help turn back people who have gone astray is set aside because it's considered not love. Lifestyles that are completely incompatible with Christianity are celebrated, paving the way to hell because that's thought of as love. 
Meaningful membership and accountability is deemed unnecessary because that's too serious. That's not love. Friends, that's not love. That's not what Paul's talking about. Genuine love always has its origin in God. And it always finds its truth as the truth of God's Word. Its roots always grow down deep in the soil of the Word of God. Healthy friendships and healthy churches will be marked by real, genuine, healthy love. Love that challenges fellow Christians to run from evil and rejoice in good, to obey God, to pursue people who don't share our personal preferences. To forgive when wronged. Some of the most loving things that have ever been done to me have really hurt. True love grows as knowledge and discernment grow. So if you say, I, when I think of love, I think of all those things that you said are not really love. That's okay. That's part of living in the environment we live in where everything is considered right for you. But it isn't helpful. It isn't love. So how do you grow? If you see that in yourself, how do you make progress? Well, you pursue a deeper knowledge of and experience with Jesus Christ. Later this fall, we'll talk in depth about that when we get to chapter 3, but just a few comments may help us. If you're growing in theological and biblical knowledge, in other words, if, if you're coming to know the Bible better, but you're sensing in yourself that you're becoming more and more grumpy, and don't do this to the person next to you. Let them figure it out themselves. If that's happening, then you're prizing knowledge for knowledge's sake, not knowledge to know God more and share him more with others. You're, you're becoming a spiritual bobblehead. So repent and start again. That's what Christians do. Knowledge without relationships in which to work that knowledge out won't result in anything that's good and positive for you. And so Christians be invested deeply with other Christians. We try to give lots of ways to do that, chiefly in gospel communities, in connection classes, in discipling relationships. But however you choose to go about that, get into relationship with other people. The humble drive to know Jesus more and more and more and more will pursue and result in growth in love. But let me be direct and frank with you. If you grow in knowledge and discernment the right way, you will grow in love. And when you grow in love, you're going to find yourself being pushed to do things you never, ever dreamed you would do. Life will not become more comfortable. God will push you beyond how much you want to give, how much time you're willing to share. People are going to come over and sit on your couch. They're going to fart. They're going to eat your food. You're going to end up asking 
somebody who doesn't have somewhere to live to stay over for a week. You're going to loan your car to people and they're going to wreck it. You're going to share the gospel with somebody and they're going to reject you. You're going to get pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Am I wrong? If you had seen me in my teenage years, you would not be sitting here today. I was selfish, egotistical, arrogant. I had never read a book. The fact that I'm standing here and some of you may come back next time is a miracle of God. <laughs> Friends, as you grow in knowledge and discernment, love is going to grow in you. And godly love can't be contained. It will move out. And there is no better way to live. But it is not comfortable, nor is it easy. But it's so much better than living for yourself. The church is God's laboratory of genuine love. And it, this laboratory has glass walls all around us. And the design of God is that non-believers would look in on this lab and they would see the experiment of life working the way it's supposed to work. And they would seek to know why. That's the way God designs evangelism to best work. Joyful thanks and confident request. This is Paul's prayer. All because the gospel was the center of his relationship with the Philippians. So in closing, let me speak quickly to two groups of people. Fellow church members, first of all. The transformation God started in you when he saved you. He's going to complete it. Some of you are discouraged today about where you are spiritually. You're frustrated. You've fallen back in the same old habits this summer. God always finishes what he starts. Always. Be encouraged. God is not in heaven with a ruler waiting to smack you on the head. God loves you. God has given himself for you. He will finish his work of making you a little replica of Jesus Christ. You can go on that journey kicking and screaming or you can say every day, God, I am, I'm in. Help me to grow to love Jesus more and know him more and make good decisions today and love people. By God's grace, you will become a replica of Jesus Christ. So won't you lean deeper into fellowship? Why don't you start after we finish here in 10 minutes? Take somebody to lunch. Talk about our gathering this morning. Visit about what you've heard. Share and partner together by buying a meal for that person. And then consider together how God might motivate you to do something for somebody this week. And start loving God with your mind if you haven't done that recently. 
I realize we're busy people. If you're out of the habit of reading the Bible and reading good, helpful books, pick one up back at the bookstall that you're interested in and start with just one page a day. Everybody can do that. One page. Put it on the toilet if you have to. One page. These habits will be things God uses to increase your joy. Everybody wants to live a joyous life. Now, this is corny, but I read it this week and found it helpful. Joy works in a particular order. Joy. G, I mean J. (laughs) Thankfully, Jill is not here to see that. And none of you are going to tell her. You can tell I went on sabbatical, right? I realize it's cheesy, but joy. J, Jesus. Your joy will increase when Jesus is first, when he's king, when he's Lord, when he's God, when you're seeking to enjoy him and find your identity, identity in him and obey him. Jesus first. Second, Oh, others, others right after Christ, right after Jesus. God, I'm going to live for you today, which invariably means I will be looking for people that I can love and serve and pray for. Believers, I can ask, how are you growing? Unbelievers, I can seek to tell the truth about the gospel to as the relationship develops. And finally, why? Yourself. You got to take care of yourself. Christianity isn't masochism. A few of you need to let others serve and get involved. You're doing everything. Jesus, others, yourself. If you pursue that pattern, which you'll find throughout Philippians, you will find joy increasing. This is the life God's given us to enjoy. To those of you in the room who are not yet decided about God, you're not so sure about Jesus, I'd invite you to consider, how did this man Paul go from a hardened murderer, a persecutor of Christians, to a guy exploding with emotion? How'd that happen? Could that happen in your life? Could you move from whatever it is that you're wrestling with and hiding to a life of freedom and peace and joy? I hope you'll consider allowing us the privilege of telling you more after the gathering. Maybe you could ask the person you came with or find me out on the patio. I'd love to share with you. We'd be delighted to try and answer your questions and share with you how this happens. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this prayer that is recorded in the Bible to help us understand what to think about when we think about church. And we pray that mature Christian, struggling Christian, brand new Christian, the person right on the edge 
of trusting Christ. And even those here today who aren't sure, even if they believe any of this stuff I've just talked about, we pray that as a result of what we've heard, that your word would do its work of changing us, of growing us in knowledge and discernment so that we might grow in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.